I'm not sure about you, but I love history. I love learning about things that have happened in the past. I really enjoy U.S. history. And this week I learned something about our nation's history. Did you know that in 1849, the population of California went from 20,000 to 100,000 people? It multiplied significantly in that brief period of time because that was considered the gold rush of 1849. Word got out around the world that gold had been found right there in California. And so people from all over the world traveled by land and by sea to get to the Sacramento Valley where they could discover and find and mine out that precious metal. People would leave behind family and property and farms in hopes of finding that precious gold. It reminded me of the text that we're going to be studying this morning of these men who leave a far distant country. They adventure out and put themselves in danger so that they might go and discover and find something that's worth far more than precious gold. This morning, we're going to see these wise men who travel hundreds of miles to come and meet the newborn King of the Jews. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is considered the, the bridge gospel. Matthew bridges the Old Testament into the New Testament, right? It's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew uses more Old Testament cross-references than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Why? Because Matthew is trying to reach Jews for Jesus. He's trying to find those who are hoping and studying in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people of God. He's trying to point them that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's pointing them to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all that they've been longing for from the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy leading up to Jesus. He starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down through David. He finishes up there with Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. And it's there that we see where Joseph, he discovers that his bride, his wife, Mary, has become pregnant not wanting to shame her, he thinks of divorcing her in private. But an angel appears to him in a dream and tells him she has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You are to name him Jesus. So once he wakes up, we see where Joseph marries Mary. He names the boy Jesus. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. 
After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. One of the common themes woven throughout Scripture is that God rewards those who seek him. Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord says, Seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, It is without faith it is impossible to please God. For since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Well, in Matthew 2, we see wise men who travel a far distance to seek and to find the newborn king. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the various responses of people who hear that the king of the Jews has been born. The first thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see the wise men seeking for the true king. Wise men who were seeking the true king. Verse 1, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now these wise men were probably from Persia, which is modern day Iran. Now to understand the significance of this, you've got to go back to the Old Testament. Remember, Persia is where Judah was taken during their 70-year Babylonian exile while they were in captivity. You go back to 2 Kings 24 and 25. That's where the people of God were taken for those 70 years. Well, during that time, God raised up Daniel as a prophet in which he would bring the word of God to bear upon the people. It was there that the word was brought to the Persians. So where did these men get the idea of following a star to a newborn king? From the scriptures. Numbers 24, 17 says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Let's think about this for a minute. Generation after generation, Gentiles in Persia have been passing down the scriptures that they received from the, the people who were in exile. Now, don't miss that. The word that was planted by the people living in exile is continuing to bear fruit. And Westwood, as I think about who we are today, let's remember, we too are foreigners living in a strange land. Peter calls us elect exiles. We are living in a world that is not our final home. We are passing through. We are sojourners headed to the promised land. We are a people who are, have not arrived yet. And yet while we are here, we are a people who bring the word of God to bear upon our coworkers, our teammates, our neighbors. We tell our children and grandchildren the praiseworthy deeds of our God. Why? Because we want future generations to put their hope in him. 
It's amazing to me. It's been almost 500 years since Babylonian exile to the birth of Christ. And yet these Persians, these Gentile men, make the travel all the way from modern-day Iran to Israel because of what they studied in the Scriptures. It's amazing to me. Now, these wise men, I look up in the star and they, 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 they look up at the star, look up in the sky, right? They see a star, right? And this star is unlike all the other stars that they're, they're in the sky. Okay, well, what makes this star unique? Well, the text doesn't tell us what's unique about the star. Now, some have speculated it's an alignment of planets. Uh, some have considered it a supernova. Some have said it was an angel. Uh, I even read where some said it's a, the Shekinah glory of God, that just as it led Moses and the people of Israel in the desert, that it's leading these Persians' uh, men through the desert towards Israel. Whatever it was, it was unique and distinct and yet compelling enough for these men to make the 800-mile trip towards Jerusalem. They want to go and see for themselves if this prophecy is true. These wise men follow the star. They come over the ridge of eastern Judea, and they see the metropolis of Mount Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem. And they presume this is going to be the place where the king is born, right? You go to find the king, you go to the capital. So they go in there and they are looking for this newborn king. And yet God sent his son through the back door. God was not sending his son to the wealthy and the privileged and the center of society. He sent his son through Bethlehem, a small redneck town six miles south of Jerusalem. A town that's known for raising sheep for temple sacrifice. Ah, but you and I know that this baby is born for sacrifice. We just sang it together. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect, unblemished, spotless Lamb who would be sacrificed so that you and I can be forgiven of all of our sin. These men trust the Word of God. They travel hundreds of miles following the leadership of a star that is drawing them to King Jesus. Now, they follow general revelation to encounter special revelation. What are you talking about, Kenneth? I put this in your notes. General revelation is God's revelation of His character through creation. General revelation is God revealing Himself through science. Through the human body, through stars, through bunny rabbits, through sunrises. We see this, uh, David addresses this in Psalm 19, verse 1. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day by day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. When you go outside and you look, in the star, look at the sky, whether it's in the morning or in the middle of the day or at night, it's preaching a sermon. Creation is proclaiming that there is a creator. General revelation is in view of both believers and unbelievers. And it is declaring that there is a creator. And while general revelation is pointing us to the reality that there is a creator, general revelation is not enough to save. In fact, you go to Romans chapter 1, we see where creation is not enough to save. In fact, it's enough to condemn 
This is why we need not just general revelation, we need special revelation. Special revelation is God's revelation of His Son through His Word. Special revelation is God's revelation of Jesus as He is revealed in Scripture. You see, the Creator has a name. We know who He is. We know what He is like through His Word. And we can have a personal relationship with the Creator through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is special revelation. So this is what's happening in the text. In Matthew 2.2, general revelation, the star, is pointing these wise men to special revelation, the sun, the S-O-N. God is using creation to literally shine a light on the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it a different way. The Creator is using creation to point back to Himself. But let's not also miss what God is also doing here. God is calling, He is wooing, He is inviting the nations to Himself. God has a heart for the nations, and He invites all people over the world to come to His Son. Isaiah prophesied what this would be like, in which nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. You see, the star in Matthew 2 is a snapshot of an even greater reality that will one day come to fruition when the glory of God will illuminate the new kingdom. In Revelation 21-24, all the nations will walk by the glory of His light. You see, your future in Christ is the light of the glory of God that will illumine all of the new kingdom and will satisfy the deepest longings of your hearts. This is your future here. And hear me, if you do not know Christ, God is inviting you to Himself, right? You're here on purpose. You're engaging online with a purpose. And God is inviting you to Himself. That God loves you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross and He gave His life for you. Your life and my life is broken apart from Christ. Sin is what has saturated our minds and our hearts and our lives. But the good news is you are still loved by God that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God sent His Son Jesus who gave His life for you. He died in your place. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of your sins. He's not a God who will shame you for your past if you will humble yourself and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ. This is why this baby was born. This is why we gather as the church and sing with gusto. Because our sins are forgiven. Death no longer has rule and reign over us. Our king, baby born in the manger, is also the exalted king, seated on his throne, high and exalted, ruling and reigning over all. And he is the one who is our true king. Oh, that you would become like a wise man and you would seek for the true king. The second thing we see in the text is not just wise men seeking for the true king, but Herod scheming against the rival king. Herod was a ruthless, cunning, insecure, and paranoid leader. He was an engineering genius, and yet he was a horrible human being. 
Okay, this is a guy who had he had ten wives, many many sons. He killed off his favorite wife because he thought she was cheating on him. He killed his uncle, one of his mother-in-laws, and three of his sons because he feared that they were scheming against him. In fact, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire, he said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. This is a terrible dude right here. He continually felt threatened, not because the threats were credible, but because he was insecure. And so when these wise men come to Jerusalem talking about a newborn king, Herod becomes, verse 3, fearful. In fact, the text says that, the, that Herod was deeply disturbed. It, that word means a sense of dread. Herod starts scheming. How can I eliminate this threat of a king born in my territory? So the first thing he does, he gathers the religious leaders to find out where the Messiah would be born. They confirm with him, Micah 5, verse 2. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He then calls a secret meeting with the wise men, wanting to know the details of the star's appearance. He then sends the wise men to Bethlehem on a recon mission. He's manipulating the wise men, verse 8, to reveal the location of this rival king. He's using them as pawns in his scheme to eliminate this threat of another king. You see, Jesus has this effect on people who love their sin. You see, people who love sin hate Jesus because they know that they will be called to account for their lives on the last day before the king. Unbelievers who love their sin will often gnash their teeth at Jesus. They hate him because his authority means final accountability. Jesus told us this. In John chapter 3, we know verse 16. We see he goes on to say in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. In this world, people who love their sin hate Jesus. In the mornings when I go and wake up my kids from a deep sleep, I'll turn on the light. And what is their response? They tighten their eyes, they groan, they pull the blankets up over their heads, right? They love the dark. Spiritually, that is a picture of unbelievers. When the light of Jesus shines, they groan, they hate the light, they want to retreat back into the dark. There is a, a hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a hatred for the final accountability that is coming, and there is a hatred for those who represent Him. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Are there people in your life who hate the fact that you follow Jesus? Are there people who scoff at you, mock you for believing such fairy tales? Are there people who roll their eyes at you and call you all kinds of religious names? People who belittle you 
people who make fun of you and hate you because you are a follower of the way. Well, let me show you how you are to respond. Paul tells us in Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, as people of the light, we will be hated for our light. But it's not our light. It's actually the light of Christ shining through us. It's the light of the glory of God in Jesus that's coming out of us. And so when people get mad at you, it's not you. It's Christ in you. It's the light of Jesus that is exposing the wickedness of their hearts. This is what the scriptures teach us. And so brothers and sisters, how do we respond? We bless those who curse us. We bless and do not curse. You love your enemies. Why? Because God loved you when you were still an enemy. When you and I were still far off, when you and I were still shaking our fist in his face, when you and I in our sin were going our own way, not wanting anything to do with him, he still loved us. He still loved you when you were walking away from him. He pursued you with an everlasting and perfect love. You are so loved by Jesus that even while you were an enemy, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You are so loved by God. And so now as those who have been rescued and ransomed and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, him who loved us, even when we were unlovable, we go and do the same. We love those who do not love us. Why? Because that's what God has done for us in Jesus. God pursued you and he loved you. And we are those who continually give a winsome witness to the gospel. Who knows? Maybe it's through your love, through your prayers for your enemies that God may be bringing them to faith in Christ. The Lord may even use you and your love in the midst of their hatred, your blessing in the midst of their cursing, in which you get to point them to Christ and win them to Him. It's amazing to me to think about how God uses the church to point people to Jesus who hate the church. But the good news of, of all of this, though the world gnashes their teeth at Jesus, Jesus has overcome the world. And so have you. We're fighting from a posture of victory. You have already won in Christ. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. You have no reason to fear. You have no reason to fight with your fists against your enemies because you have already won. And you fight not with strength, but with weakness. You fight not with pride, but with humility. You fight not with anger, but with love. That is your weapon. This is how you and I engage in a world that hates Jesus. We respond with blessing and kindness and forgiveness and love. Why? Because that's exactly how Jesus treated you. 
He showed you love and forgiveness and kindness. And out of the overflow of our hearts that God has changed us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to love your enemies and to model for them the gospel. Well, as for Herod, he's scheming, plan, it failed. He flies into a rage when he discovers that the wise men did not do what he said. So verse 16, he orders the massacre of all the boys in and around Bethlehem who are two years old and under. When Christy and I were in Israel in March, we saw the grave where all of these babies were slaughtered. And beloved, God sees, God knows. No one gets away with injustice before the all-seeing eye of God. He will one day bring to account all who seek to do evil, especially against children and his own children, those who trust in Christ. But you see, in the grand scheme of the world, as the nations rage, as the kings take their stand against the anointed one, as people rise up against Jesus, as governments outlaw the gospel, Psalm 2, the Lord who is in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks those who seek to destroy him because he knows he can just turn all of their efforts right around for the good of his people and the fame of his name. Satan is the most frustrated being there is. Every time he thinks he has a victory, God turns it around against him. We see this ultimately realized in the cross where God thought, or excuse me, Satan thought that he could destroy God by killing his son. Little did he know that it was through his own efforts that God accomplished the salvation of the nations. And God vindicated his son on the third day. Do not despair when it seems like evil is winning. They do not in the end. Satan will lose. There's coming a day in which he will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will remain forever. So little children of faith, do not fear. Our hope is firmly, squarely planted upon the one who defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, and he was born on Christmas Day. It's amazing to me that even those who try to manipulate and lie and destroy You can't manipulate the Almighty. You can't escape. You can't squirm out of God's final judgment chambers. They cannot stop His purposes. It's true for Herod. It's true today. It's true forever. So we see wise men seeking. We see Herod scheming. Thirdly, we see Israel shrugging at the arrival of their king. It's interesting, the people of Israel are disturbed, verse 3, right along with Herod over the birth announcement. We've already seen the religious leaders, they've confirmed Bethlehem as the place of the Messiah's birth. The people, they they know this. I want you to think about this for just a minute. For thousands of years, the people of Israel have been waiting, longing for, anticipating the arrival of their king, their Messiah. Just as they've been waiting for Isaiah's suffering servants as they've been waiting for the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, 
as they are longing for this king who's going to rule from David's throne forever. They're longing, they're waiting, they're anticipating. And now these wise men arrive from afar by the guidance of a star, and they are there, and the people, all of Jerusalem, the text tells us, knows that they're there. Everyone is upset. They're like, what is going on? Who is this newborn king? And so then I asked the question, how many people made the trip? How many people of Israel left Jerusalem and went six miles south to Bethlehem just to investigate? Zero. I did the math. Six miles by walking takes about two hours. By donkey ride, it's about 70 minutes if you've got a slow donkey. And they're not willing to go. Nobody goes to Bethlehem. Nobody is interested in seeing if this really is the arrival of the Messiah. These Gentiles traveled 800 miles and the Jews won't even go six. And so what we see in the text is seeking scheming and shrugging, my question is, which one are you this Christmas? Are you seeking? Are you scheming? Or are you shrugging? In fact, I put, put this in your notes, that Christmas produces three types of responses, straight from the text. The first is fury. Does the arrival of Jesus make you angry? Does the reality that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, does that lead you to scoff at him, to mock him, to despise him? If that's you today, oh, that you would humble yourself. You would get low before a bloodstained cross. You would see what your anger has accomplished since the death of God's son, but it's through his death that God has come to set you free from sin, from death, from your anger towards him. Oh, that you would humble yourself and believe upon him. Take refuge in him and you will be happy forever. The second response is apathy. Does the celebration of Christmas have you yawning? Are you like Israel? No passion, no pursuit, no interest, no curiosity, going through the motions of dead religion and no interest or passion for the gospel. Does this Christmas find you lukewarm? Is your faith at a point in which you're just like, meh? If that's where you are, I challenge you today, repent and return to your first love. Do you remember what it was like to believe the gospel? That moment you first believed when you realized, oh my goodness, I'm forgiven of everything. I'm free. I've got purpose. I'm a new person, a new creation. Everything's changed. I see the world differently. Like, I'm no longer going to hell. Like, God has come to set me free. Like, do you remember that? Oh, that we would never get over all that God has done for us in the gospel. You would not allow your faith to become lukewarm or average, or you shrug your shoulders at the celebration of the arrival of your king. And we would be a people who are growing in our passion for the Lord Jesus Christ because of his pursuit and his passion for us. He came looking for you. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time is the arrival of this king. 
all that this Christmas you would come to Jesus just as you are to the one who came for you just as he is so that you might find your hope and joy and satisfaction in him and him alone. This past week, Christy and I were doing some shopping and in this department store that we were in, there was Christmas music that was playing and song after song after song were just these great hymns of the faith. Uh, Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, right? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. And I am just in my heart exploding with joy over all the truths that are being sung over me in this intercom system. And I look across the store and people are walking through the store like zombies. Like they're in a coma. As if... Ah. This Christmas, may you and I not be found apathetic. May we not be going through the religious motions. But may we find this Christmas a white hot passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in the text fury. We see apathy. Lastly, we see humility. These wise men, however many there are, we don't know. Scriptures and texts tell us. They come, they bow down before this king. Verse 11, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. They bowed down to this king who has been born in the most humble of circumstances. What about you? This Christmas, are you ready, eager, willing to take a knee and to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you and I follow the model set before us by these Persian wise men and get low before our maker? In fact, this is the impact point, the challenge I'm bringing to our entire church is this Christmas, fall to your knees and worship the newborn king. Just as these wise men humbled themselves and with joy, verse 10, with joy, bow down before their king. Oh, that we would do the same. And you see, you and I, we don't have to travel 800 miles to do this, right? All we have to do is humble ourselves because in Jesus we find that he is the treasure that's greater than gold. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the treasure found in a field worth selling all that we possess so that we might buy Christ. We might have Christ, have all of Christ. This is what God offers us. And you see, he's no longer wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, but he's sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over all. And he is eager to come into your heart and life if you will yield your life to him this Christmas.